Hello, Microbial Nation. Welcome to another episode of the Micro Moment. It's John, and I'm here with a special guest today. With us is Dr. Michael Belares. He is the Associate Clinical Professor at the Department of Pediatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, Staff Physician of Infectious Disease at Inland ID Medical Group. On top of that, he's also a Pharmacy and Therapeutic Committee member, an Antimicrobial Stewardship Committee member, Chair of Pediatrics, Chief of Infectious Disease and Infection Prevention and Control, Medical Director at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehab Center. Last but not least, he's also the Medical Director of COVID-19 Response and the Co-Chair of Infectious Disease Workgroup in LA County Department of Health Services. Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. So, normally I'd ask people to tell them a little about yourself, but I think I did a pretty good job there. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like uh, you did a great job. I mean, um, if anybody wants to know, I like D&D and uh, I'd like to uh, just have some fun with my family. I do like tabletop gaming myself, so <laughs> it's always good to hear someone else that is. So let me ask you first and foremost, what got you hooked on microbiology or what was your micro moment? Was it something that you knew you wanted to go into or did you discover it in college? Yeah. So um, as long as I can remember, I actually um, thought I was going to go into medical school and become a physician. And so I really had sort of modeled what I wanted to do after my family practitioner, uh, whose name was Dr. Walter Newman Jr., um, who's still practicing, by the way. But in college, they had this undergraduate research program, um, and I was doing a molecular and cellular biology program. And it allowed me to sort of get involved in some basic science research in one of our fungal genetics labs under the mentorship of Dr. Mark Orbach. And through that, I actually worked with a collaboration um, with Dr. John Galgiani, who is a expert in uh, this fungal disease called Valley Fever. And so I was actually working on the fungus that causes Valley Fever called coccidiomycosis or coccidios imidis at that time. And it's since been renamed to two different strains. But so I should have known that microbiology was something that I was really going to get into, but I didn't. And uh, I went to med school still thinking I was going to do family practice. And then basically what happened was uh, Dr. Thomas Rushton, our infectious disease doctor at my medical school in West Virginia, did what we called the bug parade, which is the part of your medical school where in microbiology class, they actually talk about all the pathogenic bacteria. And so as he started doing that, I, I really was like, oh, this makes sense. And so I started working with him and that's kind of how I really got interested in infectious disease and sort of went on to do microbiology and molecular biology in both research and medicine. I have to say, like, it wasn't until uh, college that I really fell into microbiology myself. Originally, I was going for nursing because I liked medicine. I always found it interesting, but I think it's because I took that microbiology course that really hooked me into the field of microbiology. Yeah, no. And, and it's been interesting on the medical side because I interface, um, as you sort of alluded to, for the pharmacy side a lot. And then I also serve as a liaison to the laboratory side and uh, specifically in the microbiology department. So I, I sort of fill this weird void of talking between physicians, the lab, and the pharmacy team. So I, I help sort of in all those aspects of microbiology and medicine. So you have an MD, but you also specialize in pediatric medicine. How did you combine this with infectious disease? Yeah, so I actually do both adult and pediatric medicine. So it's an interesting sort of combined residency program. So you do four years of training for that. And then you go on to do a fellowship after that if you choose to. And so what I did was I did a fellowship in both adult infectious disease and pediatric infectious disease. And interestingly, in adult infectious disease, most of the things you deal with are bacterial or fungal. And when you get to pediatrics, it's a lot more viral focused because, again, a lot of the things that children get are viruses. And so, I, you know, I learned a lot of sort of overlapping information between the two, but at the same time, they were distinctly different. But I think, you know, I always wanted to take care of everybody, whether they were adults or kids. And so this was just the best path forward and really gave me a, a unique set of experiences that I don't think many do get mm -hmm. to experience. So let me ask you, is there a particular reason that you know why kids or young children tend to have more viral infections than bacterial infections? Yeah, actually, it has to do with the way we deal with them, right? So what do kids do? They go to daycare and they share toys and they rub their noses and they share 
drinks, you know. So what happens is you get a lot of viral sharing across groups of of kids. You know, kids like to hold on to adults and cuddle up, right? But by the time you're an adult, you've actually been exposed enough times that most of us have fairly decent immunity. So we don't have a lot of disease from some of these sort of viruses. So while we might think they're a mild inconvenience and a cold, you know, if we're a normal adult, um, a lot of kids, especially young kids may have a lot of trouble breathing because they can't handle the secretion caused by them or, or, you know, the, the damage they do to the lungs. Yeah. I remember like the bronco airway, it's, it's not as developed, right? Yeah, correct. So they're smaller and they get filled with, you know, mucus and kids can't clear and cough like, well, at least young kids can't cough and clear things like adolescents and adults can. So yes, they get plugged up lungs and you you end up having a lot of trouble breathing. And so oftentimes we end up admitting them. So this this is the the famous virus is the respiratory synesthetial virus or RSV. Um, there's another one that's kind of its ugly cousin called the human pneumovirus that does a very similar thing in kids. Now, you're also a clinical professor at UCLA. What is that position like? Is it teaching resident students in the hospital setting? Yeah. So the way the hospital systems work are, are, are very interesting. So I actually am employed by the county of LA as a physician for the county, but we have academic appointments and affiliations with, in our county, it would be UCLA or with USC because USC helps one of our other hospitals. So you generally get an academic appointment. Now those academic appointments can be for pure basic science research, um, which are generally called in residence, or you become a clinical professor or and go into that tract. And the clinical professor is really meant to be healthcare research, like how do you improve patient care and then teaching and educating. And, and that's where I really fall. And you know, that's one of my great loves is sort of teaching. And so being able to teach sort of the future generations of whether we're talking about medical students or residents or fellows, um, I really enjoy that interaction, seeing them kind of open up their eyes, like many of my mentors did for me, and sort of peer around and say, well, how can I make myself better? What's your favorite thing to do with uh, new residents? Well, because I'm an infectious disease doc, I get asked to do a lot of things. Um, so they usually ask about, you know, how do I use antibiotics correctly? What's the best way to to manage antibiotics? Um, but honestly, I do lectures from very basic pathophysiology, um, managing pain, uh, managing fluids and electrolytes. I, I just enjoy doing a good chalk talk in front of a bunch of residents. And, and I think Chalk talks are the best way to teach residents in small groups because you can kind of go around the room and and ask them questions. And I always tell everybody, you know, this is a safe zone. Um, you're allowed to be completely wrong. You know, let's just pick each other's brains and and sort of see what you know and what you don't know, and then I can help fill in those gaps. That's great to hear, especially uh, you know when you're first learning too. Some diseases are just so similar that it's kind of hard to tell them apart once you're going into it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we don't come into medical school or go into medical school knowing every, knowing everything, and we don't become an MD and then know everything suddenly the next day. Mm. You know, it it takes three, four, five, six years for most people to really be comfortable um, with just doing general medicine because it, it is a huge learning curve. And so, you know, it's it's fun to watch them as they grow over the years that we get to teach them. So. I also see that you have several publications that focus on antibiotic resistance, as well as your aforementioned stewardship committee role. Prevention or limitation of antibiotics is crucial. So as a committee member of antimicrobial stewardship, what actions are hospitals implementing to curb this threat? Yeah, so antimicrobial stewardship really became sort of the standard in about the early 2010s. And the goal was to really look at how hospital systems and providers were actually using antibiotics. And so I sort of started our program at Harbor UCLA before I moved over to to Rancho Los Amigos and was able to sort of build it from the ground up. And at that time, there wasn't as clear a picture, but what I looked at it as a quality improvement project. And so sort of understanding what what you're trying to do and where you're trying to get were sort of my focus. So the first part of antimicrobial stewardship is helping people to understand what does the resistance actually mean? And based on what our background bacteria actually look like is 
what antibiotics should we be starting for these various infectious etiologies? And sometimes we can't tell as physicians, right? A patient comes in really sick. You don't quite know it's wrong. So you assume they have an infection. So you start antibiotics, but it's actually really hard for a physician to sort of say, okay, I know they have heart failure, for example, but I can't completely exclude a pneumonia. So I'm just going to keep those antibiotics on and treat them anyway. And the stewardship part of that is really teaching physicians and, and other providers. Once you have a better diagnosis and you think you don't need your antibiotics, really pull back and get off those antibiotics because they aren't benign. They cause problems. One of the big problems obviously is uh, Clostridium difficile, which is a diarrhea infection that people get from antibiotics, not always from antibiotics, but often from antibiotics. And so understanding when to use antibiotics and when not to use antibiotics and when to stop antibiotics is sort of the first and foremost pillar of stewardship. The next part about stewardship is actually looking at what antibiotics you're using once you know what the infection is and if you have a specific pathogen. So there's lots of pathogens where a very simple antibiotic like penicillin is all you need versus there's some infections like what are called ESBLs, especially uh, E. coli, where you really can't use most of your antibiotics. So you're really stuck with a few antibiotics that are left, generally the carbapenems. But people will start the carbapenems and say, well, my E. coli that's also sensitive to ampicillin, I'm just going to keep the carbapenem on because I know it's treating it. And, and those are the places where we sort of pull people back and say, hey, you know that this is sensitive to ampicillin. You can go to ampicillin or to ceftriaxin or something much simpler. Now, I'm a little rusty. Is that more of a broad-spectrum antibiotic that you mentioned before, uh, ampicillin? Yeah, so the, there's different spectrums, as, as you're pointing out. So sort of the broadest spectrum drugs we have are the carbapenems, which is things like meropenem, imipenem, um, and ertapenem. And then there's very simple, narrow-spectrum antibiotics like penicillin that really only cover a very small number of organisms. So when we talk about antibiotics, it's, it's always interesting to talk to patients because they want the stronger antibiotic. And what I always reframe it as is you want the right antibiotic for whatever infection you have. And so that may be a very broad spectrum antibiotic because that's all that will work, or it may be a very simple antibiotic like penicillin that because it will work. Right. Because with broad spectrum, you're not just going after the microbe that you have the infection with. You're attacking a lot of bacteria that normally reside in your body. Correct. Yeah. So for example, um, meropenem, not only does it wipe out your ESBLs, it wipes out almost all of the gram positive organisms in your gut. It wipes out almost all of the gram negative organisms. And then on top of that, it does a drive by on your anaerobes, killing them off too. So what ends up happening is you select for those bacteria that are resistant. And what ends up happening is they become the predominant organism in your gut. And we know the gut, at least in adults, right? The genome and bio burden in adults is a roughly two to one biomass of uh, genetic material from your biome compared to the human. So we become more bacteria and uh, microorganisms than we are humans at some point in our lives. I, I've worked in the gut microbiome for a while and it's always just crazy. Like when, when you first learn how many genes there are for bacteria in you as opposed to like human. It, it's like, yeah, most of the genes or most of the proteins in your body that are being made are not yours or the diversity is not yours. It's coming from microbes. Yeah, exactly. And then microbes like to share, which is the other problem, right? So, you know, you generate one resistant bug and it shares it with its friends. I remember seeing a presentation of, what was it? It was um, Vibrio cholera, and it had these little spindles coming out, grabbing DNA and pulling it back into its body. Yep, the scavenging, yes, no. Yeah. And, that, and that's, you know, we think that's how, you know, Staph aureus got its methicillin resistance cassette, right? It stole it from other organisms, and vancomycin resistance has also been stolen from VRE before. So, you know, these things happen, and, and they steal from each other and trade and recombine and cause all sorts of havoc. Right. And so the best way is really try to minimize it as much as possible. Yeah. And eventually we'll always develop resistance. I, you know, one of my favorite stories is when the fluoroquinolones came on the market, and I, I don't remember when this was, I think it was the late 70s, they postulated there would never be resistance because it was a fully synthetic compound. And lo and behold, right, 
the organisms got smart and got resistant. So, you know, as, as smart as we think we are, the bugs are just faster and better at it. They want to survive, so they're going to find a way to do so. Exactly. And all it takes is that one mutant you select for that has some resistance and it, it drives itself into better resistance. Right. I want to pivot a little bit here. So you also have been involved in the Department of Health and Human Services for the LA County since 2017. How did you get involved with the department? What position have you held in DHSS? Yeah, so it's actually uh, Department of Health Services, um, LA County. And there's there's actually three, I think it's three major medical agencies in LA County. So there's the Department of Health Services, which is the sort of hospital clinical practice wing. There's the Department of Public Health, which obviously most people know about now due to COVID-19. I think most people would have not known what public health departments did prior to COVID-19. And then we have the Department of Mental Health. So there's a lot of crosstalk between these organizations. And I've been involved with Department of Health Services since uh, 2014, 2013. And then I've done some crosstalk work with Department of Public Health since 2017, um, where I helped sort of establish what we were trying to establish was a solid antimicrobial stewardship program across the county. And our first steps at this were actually to develop antibiograms, which is sort of a roadmap of resistance across the county. Now, LA County is not exactly a small county. It's 4,500 square miles. And so when you start talking about how resistance looks at different portions of that county, they may look very differently. But we do have that the county divided up into service provider areas. And so what we were doing was we would collect hospital data, de-identify it, and say, okay, this area of LA County sees these kinds of bugs with this kind of resistance, whereas this part of LA County sees those bugs with that kind of resistance. So that if you were, say, um, a hospital in Lancaster, and you had a patient who was hospitalized at, let's say, all of you hospital, you would be able to kind of look and say, well, we know this patient had a pseudomonas previously because it's in the discharge summary. What was the most likely uh, resistance pattern of that pseudomonas? So that was our first step in sort of trying to understand how the resistance patterns across LA County appeared. And over the last couple of years that grew and then COVID-19 hit and we sort of all shifted gears and everybody in Department of Public Health got shifted to COVID. And so a lot of these things, we've maintained supplying the information, but nobody's moved beyond this. So are there steps to kind of start shifting back to looking at all this? Yeah, I think as we start looking to the future, it'll be interesting because I think Everybody wants to pivot away from COVID-19, but I'm not sure COVID-19 is going to let us pivot, or at least not as fast as we hope. Uh, I'm involved with the uh, tuberculosis control unit in LA County as well, and they're struggling because they're so far behind and trying to keep up because LA County has a large number of immigrants, which means we have a large number of tuberculosis cases in the U.S. So all of these different departments are trying to figure out how to sort of refocus and go back. And I know one of the issues, is, especially for this particular venue, was that the one person who was um, sort of supposed to be heading it up uh, left the public health system because, you know, COVID-19 was just too much and he wanted to focus on other things. Kind of a side note. So it, for the tuberculosis uh, treatment, was it hard because, um, if I remember correctly, like a health professional needs to visualize someone taking the medication, correct? Yeah, so there's there's a whole interesting um, sort of industry, I guess it's not industry, a, a public health structure around that. So what you do is you have community health workers that actually go to houses delivering the pills and making sure patients are taking them. Um, they do that Monday through Friday, and then Saturday, Sunday, they generally give the patient the pills and say, make sure you take these. And then they ask to see, you know, the, the pills are gone when they come back on Monday. But yes, there's a whole structure and function that needs to be built around treating tuberculosis. Interestingly, LA County um, also had a tuberculosis unit at one of our hospitals um, that was co-managed by the Department of Public Health and TB Control, uh, which is under the Department of Public Health. And during COVID, it became very clear that we needed that back for other uses. So now we're trying to figure out what to do with our inpatient TB patients who really need longer stays or have multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, which is still a problem. 
did TB cases rise during COVID just because of resources being stretched thin? You know, that's a very interesting question. Um, One of my fellows who I helped train is now working for TB control. And we don't have a great answer to that question, but we do have a suspicion that he and I are probably going to look into longer term. Um, And one of the other leaders in TB control has also talked about is that post-COVID TB cases may be higher. And this may be due to the drugs we're using, right? So if you get COVID-19, we treat you with steroids. We treat you with other immunosuppressants, you know, including tocilizumab, which is uh, an interleukin uh, inhibitor. So when you start doing things to the immune system, right, you give TB a chance to, to go crazy. So it's not clear to me yet whether that's really the case or it's just, you know, as you point out, we were so busy with other stuff. People have sort of had time to really have severe disease and are presenting later, or if that's not really the case. The good news is most people were still sheltering in place for mm. a lot of the pandemic. So the spread probably wasn't as much. That's good to hear. Yeah, one 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 benefit to sheltering in place. <laughs> so when COVID was in full swing at the beginning of 2020, you became the medical director of COVID-19 in LA County. Specializing in infectious disease requires epidemiological work at times, especially if there's an outbreak at a hospital. Which of these skills helped in this position? There was no skill I, I, I could point to and say, oh, this made me prepared. I think none of us were prepared for the mm. scope of this disaster. You know, we really had to start from scratch. I had some experiences that were helpful, um, including sort of learning from some of my mentors. You know, I had done some projects on infection control in the hospital, and I had just sort of paid attention to a lot of the things they did. Um, so I'm not sure there's one specific thing that I learned or knew gives my ID training. I think probably the biggest skills that helped me was really listening to people being willing to learn and being willing to work to create consensus. And that's different, I think, than just allowing a group to come to consensus because you do have to sort of think things through and push people into a consensus that at least functions within a system. So I think those are probably the biggest skill set that I had that helped me really be successful. As you guys and all the listeners will know is, you know, we constantly had to shift our goals and our plans as the pandemic changed. And I think, you know, that was hard and explaining to your healthcare workers, you know, why we're doing it this way when last week we were doing it that way and really making sure you, you hear them and understand their concerns. Um, This was particularly important when we were working with our, our labor partners, you know, when you're talking to the nursing union or the physician's union, you know, really understanding where they're coming from and what their concerns are and addressing those head on and, and really being open to the idea that they have good ideas too, and that you know you can learn from each other. I think was really important. Yeah, I can imagine the stress. I could not imagine actually in the hospital setting, especially during the beginning, because like like you said, we were everyone was kind of learning and trying to figuring all this out at at some point in time. Yeah, and to make matters worse, right at the beginning of the pandemic, we had very little PPE. You know, one of the things that's really changed, I think, not not just for the healthcare industry, but I think for the U.S. in general, right, is this whole idea of just-in-time uh, supply chains, right? Mm-hmm. Turns out that doesn't work in a pandemic. Um, so I think our logistics teams, you know, had to scrounge and find people protective equipment. I think you know, there were stories coming out of New York where nurses were wearing trash bags, you know, taped together to provide some kind of barrier protection. So, you know, those are the kinds of other obstacles we faced in a pandemic where you didn't know who was sick because we didn't have a test yet. Um, So you had these, you know, the CT scan looks like it, but is it, you know, so it was, those were actually probably the bigger challenging things at the beginning. And once we had PPE, then it was using it wisely and explaining to people why you had to use this PPE here, but not there. So I think people were still scared and trying to figure this out. And then of course, as each variant changed, you know, we had to sort of change and pivot Um, early on in the pandemic. It was very clear that for the most part, COVID was not airborne. Um, It was really droplet transmission. You saw a few of these super spreader events where you've got lots of people infected that we couldn't explain. But for the most part, you know, when you looked at 
household attack rates, right? It was 30 to 50%. So if somebody in your house got COVID, you know, a third to half the people in the house would get COVID. When Delta came around, it seemed like it was more. And then when Omicron hit, right, it was 75, 80, even 100% in the household, right? So something definitely changed. So we had to sort of pivot from this idea that how the virus was being transmitted between the different strains, which again, causes confusion and other challenges. Also, the severity seemed to change, if I'm correct, with the uh, disease. And I'm kind of glad that my dad got Omicron because he eventually got it, but he only got like bronchial symptoms instead of pneumonial symptoms. So I was at least thankful for that. Yeah, you know, that that's an interesting question that I think we still don't have a great answer to, actually. It does seem like it was more mild, but it also could be that enough people had some level of immunity by then that you saw more mild disease. So one of the things I still haven't wrapped my head around and myself and one of the other infection control docs in LA County, we've been sort of bantering back and forth this idea that, is it really that it was less severe? Because we still saw Omicron cause really severe disease in people who are unvaccinated. So was it that we had lots of people that just had some level of immunity, whether it was vaccinated or had been exposed before, so they were not getting the really severe, severe disease, but were getting sort of this in-between mild, moderate disease. So that's an open question that I think only history will eventually reveal. Yeah, that is a really good question. What was the environment like when you became director or what had been established for COVID response and what, what had to be done when you first joined? This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S. E-A-R-C-H dot com. Yeah, so I will say none of this was done, you know, with me as the only person. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, one of the first things that our system really did was put together a group of people who could really respond. So while my role was the infection control and sort of scientific expert for the disease itself, there were people involved who were part of our logistics team, part of our HR department, part of our IT, you know, hospital leads for nursing and physicians. So when we first started this, it was, there was nothing, there was no plans, there was no guidance. And so our first discussions were really about how are we going to guide our healthcare workers? And um, one of the suggestions I made is we have the, something called an expected practice, which is not truly a, an absolute policy. It's more like a general guideline for how we expect you to, to do certain things regarding testing. And so we actually developed a bunch of these expected practices that helped guide providers on what to do in these situations. So the first one was like, how do you diagnose it? How do we do infection control in a COVID room? What are some of the cleaning things we have to do? What happens if somebody gets sick? You know, how do we give our employees the time off they need for the care they need? And then, you know, when testing came around was how do we use the limited number of tests we have? You know, so it was each time something changed in the pandemic, we had to go back and sort of reevaluate our policies and procedures and sort of adapt them for the current situation. And this was no different in the, you know, in the Omicron surge than it was in the first surge, which really speaks to how the pandemic has shifted throughout the two years that it's been going on. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, you have to set everything up. Things are flowing a new strain comes out and then you need to go back to a drawing board or reevaluate everything. Yeah. And again, you can imagine, uh, you know, as we were talking about before, you know, when you start having to 
reestablish or change guidelines, right? People start to think, well, is it because you didn't know what you were doing? And so I think this was one of the hard parts for like the CDC and the public health departments, right? Because it's it bred this idea of, look, they don't know what they're doing when really what we were doing was adapting to the situation or adjusting to the best data we had available at the time. And so I think, you know, this idea that science is finite and, you know, final is sort of, you know, mistaken, right? It, it's an on-the-fly adaption to what the data is for us at the moment. And, you know, as we continue to test and apply our theories, right, we refine them and we get better at what we're doing. And I think that's one of the hard things to explain to the public in general when you're talking about science in general. Right. I mean, if we knew everything, then there wouldn't have been possibly a pandemic or it'd be a lot uh, milder. This is something we haven't seen before. So like you said, it is an adaptive thing. Yeah. And, you know, we, we had to sort of use models that weren't were imperfect initially. So, you know, everybody was was doing the best they could at the time. Mm -hmm. And if you look at like medication, vaccines or antibiotics, it's never perfect at the beginning. They have to go through trial and error before they get it nailed down too. Yeah, exactly. So what was the most difficult aspect of the COVID response that had to be set up or maintained in your opinion? Yeah, I think the hardest part was really the changing status of the transmission and testing, um, you know, who to test when and why, um, and then how to protect everybody from it, from COVID itself. I think, you know, now we're in this weird stage two where you're trying to wind down the old things that you don't need to do anymore, but maintain the things that are important. So for example, masking, right? I think, you know, most people are tired of masking. And so public opinion is shifted to the, why are we doing this? Let's let people who want to do it, do it. And what we're seeing, right, is an increase in COVID cases. Now that's two different problems too, because right, as people unmask, we're also seeing this new variant, the BA2 variant, which is more transmissible even than Omicron was. So I think, you know, it, it just poses a, a bunch of different challenges as you take policies that you created over the last two years and try and wind them down when you don't need them, but keep the ones you do. Because again, people are ready to be done with the pandemic and they just want it to be over, even though COVID's not done with us. It definitely makes it a lot more difficult. I think, yeah, everyone is pretty tired of it. And, you know, that apathy may set in and you want to relax being safe just because you want to return to that normality. Exactly. So in your opinion, what part of the LA County COVID response had the greatest impact during the pandemic? You know, this is a great question. And what I'll say is whenever we talk about infection control, whether we're talking about it from a public health or a hospital sort of perspective, one of the problems is you never really do one change in isolation. So when you have a big outbreak, what happens is you throw a bunch of things up against the wall and sort of say, okay, what's working? Or here's all the tools we have. Let's just implement them all at once. So I don't know that I can tell you exactly you know, which things had the greatest impact. But what I can tell you is that Prior to medical grade masking being readily available to all healthcare workers, we saw large numbers of COVID cases in our hospitals and our clinics. Um, and these are what we suspect were workforce member to workforce members. So we're talking about employees to employee transmission of COVID. Once we had everybody masked, the only time we had outbreaks in our facilities was when people took off their masks and started eating together. So it was like birthday parties, celebrations, retirement parties. That's where we saw outbreaks. So I think probably the biggest impact that we made was really getting all our workforce members to be required to mask at all times, except when they were eating in a break room that had at least six feet apart from the next person. So I think that was probably the biggest impact we did sort of to protect our, our healthcare workers. Interestingly, with Omicron, again, what we saw was workforce members didn't get sick from workforce members. They got sick from their family coming home and passing it through the entire household. So again, you know, we saw a very high rate of household infections, and that's just how our, our employees all got infected. It makes sense. Like families get sick together, right? 
a kid come comes home sick and eventually makes its way around to, to everyone else. Exactly. And really, honestly, as maligned as masking is, it's probably the one intervention that makes the most difference. And there's been a lot of talk by the CDC and other public health spaces about, you know, a tight fitting mask and making sure you have a high grade mask, like a KN95 or an N95 um, or a K, uh, what is it? The Korean one is KF94, I think. The honest answer is if everybody wears a medical mask, you really do have such significant source control. You generally don't see big outbreaks. But as we start demasking, that source control goes away. And since you can't tell who's got COVID because a lot of people are asymptomatic, you know, wearing a tight fitting mask becomes more important that filters more of that virus out. I sometimes ask myself because somehow my wife and I, we've never come down with COVID. And sometimes I ask myself, like, did we? And we just didn't show any symptoms because everyone around us just kept popping up as positive. And we're like, did we at one point get it? Yeah, no, I, I had the same question. I mean, thankfully, my family's never gotten it either. I think, you know, there are antibody tests that detect specifically um, whether you've had COVID versus the vaccine. So, you know, that's one way to tell. But I, I think there's an ongoing study right now um, that the U.S. is enrolling for to understand why some people don't get COVID. I actually probably think that the people who are more careful, whether that's hand washing and masking or just avoiding large groups all the time, are probably the re- that's probably the bigger reason they didn't get it. You know, for the last two years, I haven't seen my parents. You know, I haven't had a big group at my house. You know, we did have one birthday party um, with my daughter and her best friend, but we had everybody masked at all times, you know, when we weren't eating. So, you know, I think the more you do masking, the more you avoid big groups, the better off and more protected we were. So, what did DHHS learned during this pandemic that would be useful in preventing potential outbreaks for future diseases? Yeah, I think going broader than LA County and just looking across the globe, I think what we learned is that we had an opportunity to really catch this much earlier. And I think, you know, there were mistakes made in the US, there were mistakes made in Europe, there were mistakes made in China. And I think, you know, early recognition is probably the most important thing. So for example, with the original SARS virus, we sort of got lucky because that virus didn't start transmitting until you had symptoms for at least two days. Whereas COVID, when we initially found COVID, we tried to apply that same expectation And we realized that the huge numbers of people getting infected meant that they were transmitting before they were symptomatic. So I think those early opportunities to really look for COVID and really prevent the spread could have probably saved many, many lives. Um, And I think once we realized that it was in the population and, you know, states and countries started shutting down to try and control it, at least until we had better information was probably the best we could have done. But I think, again, early detection and early identification was probably the key thing that we missed. And it saddens me that this pandemic has made people more polarized. I can understand that people can get emotional or passionate about their stance, which makes communication and education more difficult. Emphasizing the need to be calm and easy to understand when talking about it. What would some of your advice to someone who is attempting to educate others be? Yeah. So. You know, recently I've spent a lot of time thinking and actually trying to manage this question. There's so much misinformation out there. The best thing you can really do is arm yourself with the facts. And so uh, recently I sat down with a therapist at, at one of our hospitals who was a physical therapist, and she had not gotten her vaccines or not gotten her booster shot at least because of some of the fears and concerns that had fed into sort of social media. And it turns out, you know, she had a real event with the vaccines. Um, It was probably true, true and unrelated, uh, meaning that she got her vaccines. She had this other complication and they were probably not related at all. 
However, when she went to her medical doctors, she didn't get good information. They didn't want to do any workup because they said, well, you know, this is just not a big deal. And so she became scared and frightened. And so as we sat down and talked for over an hour about this, I sort of presented all the data. So for example, the fact that, you know, the J&J vaccine causes blood clots. Okay. Yes, it causes more blood clots, especially in younger women. So women under the age of 50, their risk of having a severe blood clot is about 10 per million. So one in 100,000. If you look at clots caused by COVID, it's about 40 per million or four per 100,000. So it's four times higher if you get COVID that you'll have a serious blood clot than getting the vaccine. So what, it, what risk are you really willing to take? So while I tell young women under the age of 50, I say, you know, don't go get the J&J vaccine unless you have no other choice because you had some really bad reaction to the other vaccines. The risk is much smaller than actually having COVID itself. Um, similarly with myocarditis and pericarditis, COVID causes much more uh, myocarditis and pericarditis than the vaccines do at all. And I think with the new spread out duration between the two doses uh, for the first primary series, we're going to see a lot less of that myocarditis, pericarditis, because you're not going to rev up the immune system quite so much. So I think, you know, arming yourself with the facts and then going to talk to people and let them share their concerns. Don't be dismissive. Think about what they're worried about. Try and understand where they're coming from and then present them with the real data. Because oftentimes it's, oh, so-and-so told me this from Facebook or Twitter or, you know, the mom's group on Facebook is sharing this. Is this true? You know, women are very afraid of the fertility question. But again, there's pretty good data that there is no fertility issue. And, and actually that the data where people were worried about fertility issues came from people who already had fertility issues before they, you know, got the vaccine. So, you know, a lot of the data out there is just not good data. I remember one study that was put out in a preprint that looked at vaccines and um, hormonal response. And they said, well, if you get a vaccine, it, causes changes in your hormones. Therefore you're at risk for getting infertility. Well, the reality is when you get sick, your hormones change. Does that mean you're at risk for infertility? So I think again, making people stop and think about what the data actually tells them versus, you know, what they think it's trying to tell them is an important factor here. So arming yourself with information and then being patient and understanding where they're coming from and seeing their point is really key to sort of helping them better understand the landscape of COVID medications, COVID vaccines, you know, treatment options to prevent COVID. So uh, there's a new monoclonal out that you can get if your immune system's not normal to kind of help prevent COVID. It's like giving yourself a dose of antibodies. Um, so all these things are really important for people whose immune systems aren't normal. The flip side is they don't work as well as a vaccine, right? So if, you're, if your immune system's normal, you're much better off getting the vaccine than you are getting the monoclonal, but people don't understand that. Um, and Florida is a big, a good example where that theory is being pushed that monoclonals are better than the vaccine. Well, they don't even last that long, right? You get maybe a couple months of immunity out of monoclonal. Yeah, there's a, there's one now that gives you roughly six months protection, but you know the current other monoclonals. That's Evashield, E V U S H E L D. If people want to look it up, it is a injection. There's two big injections in your bottom. And basically it gives you about six months of antibodies that are equivalent to sort of a low level immunity. So if you do get it, it's likely to be more mild and it does prevent quite a few infections for people who, who just won't respond to vaccines because their immune system's not normal. I don't know if this is polarizing to say or not, but I feel like some media outlets like presented half of the information instead of full of the information. Cause I heard about the blood clots too, but Every news source I, I saw never mentioned you have a higher chance when you get COVID of having a blood clot than the vaccine. Yeah. One of the local LA uh, TV stations was doing a story and I was asked, actually asked to talk about the pause when the Janssen and Janssen pause had happened. And one of the things I brought up was exactly that point because at that time, the risk was about seven per million versus 38 per million. 
So, you know, it was about five times different at that point for women specifically under the age of 50. And so I made that point and, you know, it was very interesting to hear the interviewer on the other side saying, oh, I hadn't heard that, you know? So I think, yeah, I think media is about sensationalization, right? The more sensational it is, the better you're going to get your, your people to look at the headlines. But I do think news organizations, and I think many are trying to, need to make sure they present, as you point out, all of the information so people can make informed decisions. The problem is a lot of people are purposely doing it because they want that misinformation out there. And there's a, there's a time I was stopped by a woman in a, in a grocery store, and this is when the vaccine first came out. And she's like, is the MRA going to affect my genes? And I, I should have like, no, that's not the way mRNA works. And I can understand a lot of people's misunderstanding because genetics itself is a very complicated field. Like we're still finding ways our genes are even being regulated to this day. We're still figuring new things out. So I can I can understand how a lot of people may not understand like how the mRNA vaccine is affecting them. Yeah, and I think right that's what stymied mRNA vaccines for so long is this fear of, you know, what does it do? Because it's a genetic material. And I think, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the, if you take a step back and talk about like the adenovector vaccines or the J&J vaccine in the US, these viruses have been doing this for, you know, the beginning of time since humans were around, right? They get in, they get translated, they produce new virus particles and they use them machinery and yet we were afraid of, you know, sort of introducing just the last step of that machinery. So I think, you know, again, what people understand about science is probably the bigger problem. And I think, again, educating the public is a very challenging process. And so sometimes, you know, when you have those people who just don't understand taking a step back like you did and explaining that mRNA just won't affect your genes like that is really important. So as we get to the end of this interview, is there anything else you would like to say or tell the audience? Yeah, you know, the big thing is, unfortunately, the pandemic is not over. I think most of us want it to be over. Um, I'll point to the uh, records for the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, right? In 1920, there were still, still huge outbreaks. So three years in, you know, they had huge flu outbreaks. But, you know, the tools we have the ability to have developed the vaccine as quickly as we have, the medications that we've been able to develop. For example, um, Pfizer's Paxlovid, which is a protease inhibitor of the virus, right? Molnupiravir, which causes mutational changes in the virus so that it can't replicate because it creates so many mutations, just falls apart. You know, we wouldn't have had the ability to do all this, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So I think, you know, we have the tools, we have the ability to sort of really protect ourselves from further damage of this virus. So I encourage everybody to really be ready. And, you know, the best way to sort of protect the community and your family is to really use the vaccines. They're safe, they're effective. You know, we need to have a well-vaccinated population. And as things change, I'm sure we will have to change. And so, you know, I expect in the near future, we will probably have a variant vaccine um, that will sort of improve the effectiveness of the current vaccines against the strains we're seeing. And I suspect much like the flu, every year we'll be tr trying to figure out, you know, how to better control this. The good news is there was uh, the Prussian flu can't remember exactly what year it was. It was like 1884 or something. It wiped out about a million people in Europe. And researchers have looked back now because they were trying to figure out what kind of virus it was. And they actually think it was the human coronavirus. So, really? you know, yeah. So I think, you know, people say that it may be with us forever, but at the same time, as it mutates and adapts, it may become just another cold virus that doesn't cause all these big problems. Um, so I think, you know, there is hope and there is, you know, the reality that this is going to pass, but we just need to take our time and be comfortable with, you know, how the tools we have work and how to implement them when we need them. 
Is there anyone uh, you would like to thank? And are there any resources you would like to plug? Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the entire team at Department of Health Services in LA County that helped manage the COVID outbreak really just did an amazing job. And I'm not talking about, you know, just the physicians, nurses, and laboratory people. I'm talking about our HR teams, you know, that helped um, provide the guidance, our legal teams and our ethicists who helped us understand if we hit that crisis moment, what were we going to do and how were we going to manage our resources? Our logistics teams, um, I have to say, just did an outstanding job because while we were hearing about all the crises across the country, our logistics team um, for Department of Health Services just managed to stay just ahead of every disaster and keep us in the clear. You know, so I think it was really a team effort. And so I think that pulling together of all of our resources and acting as one cohesive unit and being able to, as, as my boss during this whole COVID pandemic kept saying, we have to be nimble and we have to be functional. And, you know, we really did pull off both those pieces throughout the pandemic and the rapid changes we had to make. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Microbial Nation, that is the end of our episode. I would like to thank Dr. Michael Blairs for coming on again. I really enjoyed our talk, and I thought he brought a lot to the table. Especially with this current pandemic, there's a lot that I did not know about. Did you learn a lot? Let us know by sending us an email at microbigels at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter at microbigels. Are you interested in learning about other careers in microbiology? Well, listen to some of our other podcasts on careers. We also have blogs on careers on our website, microbigals.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S.com, where you can click on Career Corner and find blogs on various different careers in microbiology. Well, until next time, everyone. Bye.